0: This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name's Owen Lynch. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Um, I often listen to podcasts when I'm running. That's my reference to what. Uh, if you're running right now, then keep going. You're doing well. Keep up the pace. But I really enjoy listening to podcasts when I'm running. So if you listen to this when you're running, then uh, then you know I hope the run goes well. Um, but generally, um, running's been a thing for me since, uh, since lockdown. And um, I used to run before that, but I really kind of started doing it a bit more frequently and uh, do you know what i, I just passed a thousand kilometers since lockdown so i was quite pleased with that that's great yeah thank you very much um and um if you know me you'll know that i love football um i, I do love playing football i've spent several years coaching the teams that my sons were in but uh, but recently dan my friend invited me to go and play uh, tuesday night football is usually a kick around 5 a up at um i think it's clifton college football ground up there and um honestly it's, it's the worst place to go if you want to get injured you know because there's no control no everyone just runs everywhere it's just like when your kids play football when ki- when you're coaching kids playing football the primary thing you're trying to stop them from doing is just running after the ball like like a gang they get kind of like a swarm they go from this side of the pitch to that side of the pitch and that's what we tended to do <laughs> on tuesday nights and wednesday nights so it's clearly not making any difference um, but anyway it was it was a good game and afterwards um uh uh, one of the guys, it was a mixed age. In fact, I took my son down, he's 17, and then, I don't know, maybe the oldest was mid 50s. And um, this guy came up to me afterwards, and he, he kind of was, he was being really generous. He said, oh, mate, great game, well done. He said, uh, do, you, do you play for the over 45s or, or the over 50s? And I was like, I was like, I laughed and I went, Yeah, no, I just play for fun, you know. But, uh, but I was like, Oh, inside, I was like, Oh, crikey, I really do look over 50 now. now I to, I've just turned 50, so that was a bit depressing. But, but no, I like, I like keeping fit. I like, I like being uh, um, sporty. And, um, and the reality is, though, I carry some wounds. I carry some injuries from the past, right? So I've got a fascial hernia just on my calf here. It's just a little sensitive bit of uh, pokey-out muscle. It's kind of poked through the fascia and uh, it's quite sore. And my calf will cramp up occasionally if I go too far. Um, what else do I have? I've got... Uh, I've got... What, what else did I say that I have? I've actually forgotten why I have... Oh, that's right. I have a corn on the bottom of my foot. Has anyone else got one of these? Like, I, I've, since running, Josh, you, you run a lot, don't you? You haven't got one yet. No, so since I've started running for the last three years, I do a of corn on the bottom of my foot. So, it's just where the, I put the pressure. And the darn thing, I can't get rid of it. It's so sore. And I just, I just put up with the pain of it. But I carry it in my body. Um, we all have... Injuries that we kind of carry on our bodies. Right? We all got kind of disabilities or diseases that we carry in our body. Maybe you haven't yet, and that'll be fantastic that you haven't for now. But uh, it's coming. Um, but uh, so for me, I've got a, a weaker left eye. My left eye is weaker. I can't see very well out of it, and it doesn't always track. When I'm tired, it particularly doesn't always track my right eye. That's that's always been part of my life. It's something that I've just carried. With me, um, I, uh, you know, I, I I find keeping my tummy in check a, a thing. Really, guys, anyone else feel, find that problem? I'm actually sucking it in right now, so you won't notice. Um, I've I've grown quite used to trying to just hold it in, uh, but that, that, that I carry that that with me. Um, we we all carry physical wounds. Uh, or injuries, or diseases, or disabilities in our bodies, don't we? And we live well without them, hopefully, with them, rather. Um, but we also carry emotional wounds in our bodies as well, wounds that other people have inflicted on us, or circumstances that have occurred to us, perhaps we've been in a traumatic situation, and we carry those wounds with us, and we try and live with those wounds. And uh, and sometimes they hurt, and sometimes we can suppress them and ignore them, but nevertheless, we still carry them. Um, I wonder what wounds you carry around in your body, what, what wounds do you carry around in your soul, in your spirit? Maybe right now you're thinking of them and thinking, I don't really want to talk about that, because it's just too painful, or it just hurts too much and we suppress it. Um, I'm a, a physiotherapist, as you probably most of you know, and much of my job is about helping people get the most out of their bodies. Like it's about, to be honest with you, it's about trying to keep people in the game. Like, you know, they've got a postural abnormality or a postural weakness. So they've got weak hamstrings, that's always a one, uh, overtight calves, you know, just an achy back. And, and my, my job is really to ha- try and help them optimize what they've got to, to kind of, even though they've got those weaknesses, even though they've got those sort of uh, uh, wounds in their body, my job is to help them make the most of what they've got and optimise their performance and keep them in the game. And, uh, and that, that's so often the role of a therapist. Not to, not to heal or cure completely, but to help someone stay in the game. Now, on a slightly different track, as a nation we are all living in currently in difficult financial times and many people are struggling with what I would call financial wounds. The cost of living crisis is consistently pushing up prices. What was it last month, another 10%, 10 I think food prices are up 20% year on year at the moment. And everyone's feeling that pinch, electricity and gas prices. You know, everything is is just going up at the moment. We're all finding the challenge to make ends meet. And of course, perversely, the poorest are suffering the most. Basic items like bread and milk and meat and vegetables, um, gas and electricity, those things, perversely, are going up the most. Uh, As you know, we have a food bank, and uh, frankly, um, we've just seen demand for that food bank climb in the last year, over and above what it's ever been. And right now as well, we find that actually, along with all the other food banks in Bristol, routinely we're running out of food, because we just cannot keep up with the demand uh, for food at the moment. So as a nation, we are enduring financial hardship it's a difficult time even if we're not feeling ourselves as a nation we are and it's true that charities are seeing a significant drop in funding as people tighten their belts all over bristol and we're, we're connected in with charities all over bristol and um, all over bristol we're seeing charities and in the uk across the uk they're having to lay off staff now because they can't afford uh, to keep their staff and uh, sadly we are looking at a similar situation here at seven as well and we're looking at carrying a financial wound ourselves. In the last few months, um, I'm sad to tell you that four of our largest donors have stopped their donations to seven. Now that's, friends, a total of £5,000 a month, including tax back. £5,000 a month. And seeing many of you just kind of suck in a little bit there, go, wow, four people, four donors, are giving £5,000 a month, or rather, were giving £5,000 a month. That's a lot of money. And what you'll recognise is that Probably if you're thinking to yourself, wow, how do, how, what, how, do, how do four people give that much money? Well, probably because they've got it to give, but probably because they also believe in the principle of tithing and giving a tenth to their local church, a tenth of their income. And that principle of tithing, of course, is deeply embedded in our Christian culture. And it's a principle that has enabled this church to become a thriving church over the last 13 years from a standing start in 2009. Now, You'll remember most of you that are connected to Seven that, that actually Claire and I and the rest of the pastoral staff know one apart from our bookkeeper and our um, business manager knows what people give individually. But what I can tell you is uh, uh, that those four people have stopped giving uh, their donations to Seven for all for personal reasons, not because they've fallen out with the church, for reasons including moving away from the city. So it's not some sort of uh, coordinated action or some people that are disgruntled with the church. It's just part and parcel of... The day-to-day life of a church like Seven, particularly a church in in the middle of the city, where we have a high turnover of people involved in Seven. But nevertheless, um, that's about sixty thousand pounds a year. And you know what? It's been, you know, the last we've always felt incredibly blessed as a church um, financially, right from the start. People have been incredibly generous, and so much so that in the last. At least five years, the income of the church has always been between 270 and 300,000 pounds a year. So that's always been incredible. Um, and our friends who lead other vineyard churches are always slightly jealous of the situation we find ourselves here in at seven. But as you can see, 60,000 pounds is about 20 to 25% of our income gone like that. And so that definitely is putting pressure on us as a church. Now, it is uh, also the case this year that uh, when we budgeted, which was we were budgeting this financial year, which runs from July to June. We were budgeting this time last year, as we are budgeting now for July to June next year. Um, We we budgeted for around about uh, 28,000 pounds more than we had in one-off donations as well. So we think that's down to the cost of living crisis that's affecting us all. We simply all have less money to give, right? So I want to say to you today, first of all, that it's thrilling that four individuals could find five thousand pounds to give to the church. It's absolutely a month. It's absolutely thrilling and um, it's thrilling because those people have been able to and willing to donate that much money to the church and their commitment to this idea of tithing means that they have contributed between 20 and 25 percent of the income which is just an amazing example to us all and I hope it inspires you as it inspires me. However, it is also challenging for us. It's challenging for us as a church. We're going to have to make some deep cuts to the staff's, sorry, to the seven's expenditure immediately. And from May, uh, uh, a few decisions we've already made. We're going to reduce the number of rooms that we rent here at the station from six to four. And uh, we are going to try and cut the, well, we're going to have to cut the expenditure on events and overheads as well. But by far the biggest cuts will need to be in the employed staff team because we generally spend around 50% or about 52% at the moment on core staff costs, on staff salaries. So therefore, we've initiated with the staff team this week a process of reducing staff hours and possible redundancy for some in the staff team. Claire and I are going to take the first cut with a likely 30% reduction in our income from the church. And we anticipate, though, even with that, that we'll also need to reduce payroll costs by another £20,000 a year. Now, that's going to be painful for our staff team. Um, who need to reduce hours or are made redundant, it's going to be painful for us as a church. Now, as you know, many of us on the staff team are bivocational. By that, I mean we have two jobs. So I'm a physiotherapist and a pastor. Claire's a physiotherapist and a pastor. Um, Other members of the staff have two jobs as well. And hopefully that strength of the staff team will, will, well, it's going to be put to the test in this next few months but nevertheless it is a strength and it's something that we will be relying upon going forwards but it's also going to be painful for us all as a church with less staff available we simply are going to need more volunteers to fill in the gaps especially in the provision of Sunday services here on a Sunday Um, if we could all take the opportunity to just fill one space once a month on a team that would probably help solve any of the problems we have with Sunday services in terms of reducing staff numbers. So you heard it said earlier on, the kids teams, the youth teams, the refreshment teams, setup teams, host teams, worship teams, production teams, all of those teams will have gaps on them. And if you're not volunteering and if you're at home watching this and thinking, I I could volunteer, if you could volunteer, that would really help us at this time um, because we will need to reduce the staffing here on a Sunday. So listen, let me say this to you. 21 years of experience of leading a church reassures me that this is just a season okay we have seasons of plenty and we have seasons of less and we need to respond sensitively to this situation so as a church we have a financial wound as individuals we have financial wounds as a nation we have financial wounds and particularly with inflation being so high at the moment and with inflation being so high what we're not doing today is trying to persuade you to give more money to the church um, because most of us don't have it to give. That said, if you want to, and you can, increase your monthly donation or make a one-off donation, then that would be fantastic. But we are not gonna hold another gift day so soon after our gift day back in February, following the vision talk that we always give in January. We're not gonna do that to you. So so just know that we're not gonna make a big ask to you, but if you can, and you want to, then all we simply ask you to do is contact our business manager, Liz Nixon to let her know and make your change if you want to and you can. Now, as a church, what we need to do is we need to carry this financial wound with us. We need to carry it within our body. And we need to carry it and stay in the game. A bit like I encourage my clients to do as a physiotherapist. You've got this wound, but I'm going to help you stay in the game. You know, I have some clients who just won't stop playing sport, you know, they just won't stop. I've got a cricketer. There's no, point, there's no point in me trying to stop him playing because he just will play anyway. So my job is to keep him in the game. So I treat him and I keep him in the game. And this is what we need to do with Friends as a church. We need to carry on staying in the game and carrying this financial wound with us. Now with this in mind, I want to ask a question uh, today is how do we stay in the game whilst carrying wounds? And I want to say to you as well, it's it's a question that I think you'll probably find pertinent to you because we all carry wounds, whether they're physical or emotional or financial or relational. We're all carrying wounds in our lives. So how do we carry those wounds and live well at the same time? That's a very difficult thing to do because often when we're carrying wounds, the bitterness, the pain, we carry it. It kind of bubbles up, doesn't it? We try to suppress it. We try to keep you know, uh, a mask on and hide it from other people. But the reality is sometimes it bubbles over, doesn't it? It bubbles over when we're, you know, driving along in our car and someone cuts us up and then there's a road rage moment. And you're like, where did that energy come from? It's probably coming from some emotional stuff going on inside. So the question I wanna ask is today, and I wanna try and find the answer as normal from Christ Jesus. How do we live well whilst carrying our wounds? So it's two weeks since we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And the gospel accounts and Paul's letters record 10 occasions over this period from resurrection to what we call Ascension. And I'm going to talk about Ascension in the next few weeks. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you because I think it's a really overlooked and important day in the life of the Protestant church. But nevertheless, um, uh, over 40 days, there are 10 times or 10 records, if you like, of the resurrected Christ Jesus appearing to his disciples. Now most Christians accept the resurrection as a fact but there are some people who argue it might be plausible to think that Jesus did not completely die and that he was resuscitated. You might remember that awful moment back in, it was actually 2021, a bit confusing. It was the Euro 2020 football championship um, held in 2021 because of COVID. Um, but nevertheless, you might remember the awful moment when Christian Eriksen, the footballer, had a cardiac arrest on the pitch. Fortunately for him, there were medics on hand and they resuscitated him and now he's just perfectly fine now. He's got a pacemaker, and uh, I think it stimulates his heart if he would have another cardiac arrest. But basically, he's fine. And he plays football at the highest level. In fact, he's playing for the best football team in the world, Manchester United, <laughs> in the best midfield in the world, which includes Casemiro Ericsson and Bruno Fernandes. So I'm saying, I'm just putting that out there. But nevertheless, there's a man that's completely recovered. He's resuscitated. Okay. Now, some people think that's what might have happened to Jesus. If you want to check that out, read Mark 15 the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, where the author goes to great lengths to demonstrate that Jesus really did die on the cross and there really would have been no opportunity to resuscitate him. And let's be honest, even if they had the equipment, which they didn't. Okay, so, so some people think that. Some people might argue that it's plausible to think that Jesus' resurrection was similar to the three people who Jesus, it is said, resurrected himself. So you might think of, if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus, you might think of the widow's son or Jairus' daughter or even Jesus' friend Lazarus. If you want to know more about that, then at least read Mark 16 when you get home and where we see some real key differences between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of those other three people. Friends, that might be a question you've often wondered about but never known where to ask. Well, it's there, there, right in Mark. Just look in Mark and you'll see it. There's some key differences. First of all, after his resurrection, Jesus had some remarkable qualities. So he walks along a road with two of his disciples to a place called Emmaus and they don't recognise him. So somehow Jesus is... Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought this and gone to the natural conclusion? Well, Jesus must have looked different then if they didn't recognise him. I mean, I know they wouldn't have expected to see him, even though Jesus, by the way, apparently from the Gospel accounts, actually spoke a lot about being resurrected. They still didn't expect it. But they didn't even recognise him. So did he look different? He might have looked different. Then they did recognise him. And then they sat down and had food with him. This is a man who's died and been resurrected. And then he disappears right in front of them. On another occasion, Jesus just appears from nowhere in the middle of a locked room where his disciples were hiding. And what do they think? This is the first time they've seen him. All of them together, they think he's a ghost. They are freaked out. Strange, strange. The resurrected Christ Jesus was not quite like the pre-resurrection Jesus of Nazareth. He was different. Um, Another time he appears from nowhere, cooks up a barbecue of fish for them. And they all eat together. This is a man who's died and been resurrected. And of course, there is no record of anyone other than Jesus who has died a second death and then floats up into the sky and a cloud hides him. You read that in Acts 1. Okay, so there's lots of differences between the resurrected Jesus and the resurrected people that Jesus resurrected. You know, it sounds pretty bizarre to us, all these things. You know, I mean, it does, doesn't it? I mean, am I the only one that, th- it sounds bizarre? I mean I, I mean, I can't wait to tell you about the resurrection because I struggle with the resurrection. Does anyone else, not the resurrection, the ascension. Does anyone else struggle with the ascension? The idea of Jesus floating up into the sky. Honestly, if I started floating up into the sky, Anna, what would you do right now? You'd check, wouldn't you, that there were no strings attached to me, right? You know, that's what it says. Jesus floated up into the sky and was hidden by a cloud. That's what it says. Now, was it a metaphor? We don't know. But the fact is, is that it's the most bizarre thing you've ever heard of. Well, it's a bizarre to us, in our sort of 21st century Western British mindset. But to Jews living in the first century, it wasn't so bizarre as it might seem to us. You see, back to them, to um, first century re- uh, Jews, resurrection, it didn't mean resurrection to the same life that you had before you died. It meant a new kind of experience. And I'm going to just back that up before you start throwing rocks at me. 1 Corinthians 15 Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, uses a metaphor to help describe the new existence of Jesus after the resurrection. I'm going to read th- verses 35 to 37. This is what Paul says. Because Paul's having the same conversation, okay, with these rational people who are living in Corinth. By the way, if you've never been to Corinth, it's a lovely place to go to. You can go and see the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, we went like two, three years ago, didn't we? It's a fantastic place. Just in Greece. Go to, go to Athens. It's just around the corner. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35-37. But someone will ask, Paul says, oh, how are the dead raised? Funnily that, that's the question we're asking, isn't it? Okay, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Well, Paul. Paul this is a great example of Paul being um, fairly direct. How foolish. If I said that to you right now, you'd all be offended, wouldn't you? How foolish a question that is. No, he literally says, How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. He says this, he says, the physical body is to the resurrection body like a seed is to a fully grown plant. So take, for example, a sunflower. Okay? When you want to grow a sunflower, now I'm not a gardener, so you'll get this, but I don't think you plant the stalk, the leaf, or a petal. You won't get another sunflower if you plant those things. You have to plant the seed. But when you look at the seed, it looks nothing like a sunflower. Because the sunflower head, although it's got lo- loads and loads of seeds in the head of it, it's, you, what you really see is the beautiful yellow of the petals and, and the amazingly thick stalk. And if you go and see a field of them, it's quite beautiful. And what Paul says is, the seed that you plant isn't the same, doesn't look the same as the plant that it produces. And he says that's what the physical body is to the resurrection body. He says that's what the pre-resurrection Jesus of Nazareth body was to the post-resurrection Jesus of Nazareth. So you like the difference between a seed and a plant. Does that make sense? Which I, th- I think is quite a helpful metaphor. Um, so well done, Paul. Um, and then he says in verses 42 to 44, he says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, sorry, the body that is sown is perishable, i.e. like the seed, it dies, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, some of the translation there might not be that helpful to us. He's not saying that Jesus is a spirit, like a ghost. He's still got physical body, but he's got different powers, different existence, if you like. It's, It's tremendously different from what it was before. And I think, you know, if you really want to understand Paul, you need to understand that this was his obsession. His obsession was in demonstrating that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ Jesus, was the Christ, was God incarnate. And that's his, his, his life's obsession, and that's why he explains it in this way. But really, Paul struggles with the same thing that we all struggle with, which is, how do you describe the indescribable? You, de- you can't, can you, easily? It's a bit like a sunset. Try and describe it. It's a bit like a, a stunning view a powerful emotional experience, you can't put it into words. And that's what Paul's struggling with here. You can't put into words the difference between the pre-resurrection Jesus and the post-resurrection Jesus. And so he's struggling for words and metaphors and they're only partially effective. But you know what I find remarkable about, about the resurrected Christ Jesus? And I hope you do too. You may have already got to this before, but this is new to me. Whilst Christ Jesus is the new version of his old self, he still carries in his body the wounds of crucifixion. You know that, right? Because you, you're probably familiar with the doubting Thomas who, who said, I won't believe that Christ has been raised from the dead unless I can touch his wounds. So this new Christ Jesus carries the wounds of crucifixion in his body. Wouldn't you have thought that the wounds would have just been fully healed up and they wouldn't be there anymore when he was resurrected? No, the wounds are still carried in his body. In John's account of Jesus' life, chapter 20, Jesus invites Thomas to touch the wounds from the nails that were driven through his wrists. And if you've ever watched any of the gory films that are made about the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, you'll know that they weren't just little nails from wicks. They were big pieces of iron, lumps of iron just kind of pushed through his wrists. And, and they would have, that would have been massive holes in his wrist and of course anyone knows that if you cut your wrist you're likely to die because you bleed from you know it's quite big arteries there and then you'll know that when he was on the cross the roman soldiers got a spear probably a rudimentary spear by our standards and stuck it in his side they plunged up through his abdomen through his diaphragm into his thorax into his heart and lungs you don't recover from that all right that's pretty dead so, so he has this wound which goes up through his side, into his diaphragm, into his thoracic cavity, into his lungs, probably into his heart. You've got big gaping gashes and wounds in his wrists. Now, we don't know if the post-resurrection Jesus, if those wounds were painful or not. But let me say this. In a normal person, right, if in any normal person, who has nails driven through their wrists and a spear stuck in their side into their thoracic cage and into their heart and lungs any person that's experienced that right? even if their wounds are still there they're not going to be walking around because after a few days those wounds are going to be infected they're going to be putrefying they're going to have gangrene in them the whole body is going to be thoroughly weakened to the point of death that was the point they did those wounds they inflicted those wounds to murder him to kill him so the question is, when he invited Thomas to put those, his fingers in his wounds, what were those wounds like? Were they putrefying? Were they painful, agonizingly painful? Were they full of gangrene? We don't know. But somehow Jesus is not complaining about them. Somehow Jesus seems to be himself. Somehow Jesus seems to be able to be alive, which frankly is impossible. And so we have this situation where the resurrected Jesus has the wounds, but somehow they look like they might be healed. Because how can they not be? How can they not be? Because they would have been grotesque. They would have been gangrenous. They would have been infected. Jesus would have been on the floor, frankly, if those wounds were like the wounds were, would be if we'd had them done to us. So is it possible that these wounds were healed even though they were still visible? How did the resurrected Christ live with those physical and emotional wounds? Because of course, I'm just talking about the physical wounds I'm not talking about the emotional wounds of having a gang of people murder you. So the question I want to ask you is is the resurrection an example of how divine love can heal our wounds so that we can live free from pain bitterness and dysfunction even though the wounds are still present in our body? Is the resurrection an example of how divine love can heal our wounds and we can live free from pain and bitterness and dysfunction even though the wounds are still present in our body and in our mind? Is it possible to carry those wounds and yet be healed of them? I want to suggest to you that the resurrection of Jesus shows us that we can be healed of the pain, the bitterness and the dysfunction of those wounds. They may well still be present in our lives but we can get healing so that we can stay in the game. We can still live and live well. And friends, we may need the help of therapists and counsellors to get healing. Now, I am not inviting you all to bring your physical ailments to my clinic. Okay, although I might need you to when we reduce our income. Um, But the reality is, friends, is that actually um, we do need therapists. We do need trained experts. We do need psychotherapists. We do need counsellors. And if you are carrying emotional wounds that you have not sought expert help for, then I want to encourage you to seek help because I think you can get healing. I think you can get healing because I think the resurrection body of Christ shows us that you can be healed. Same true of physical ailments as well, friends. But you know, healing for our wounds also comes from being part of a healthy community, healthy families. Families that are working hard to resolve their differences, working hard to live in friendship and love with one another. Families and communities that really do stand and walk together so that we can be companions with each other as we go through difficult seasons. Now, as we share in the financial wounds of this present period of inflation together as a nation, we also, as we share in the financial wound of the loss of income to seven, and we will feel it, friends. I want to invite you today to share in what we call the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper communion, call it what you like. We're going to take some bread and we're going to take some juice. And we're going to just take this together as a community, as a physical symbol, of the healing that is available in Christ's body, in the resurrection body. Your body can be like the resurrected body of Christ. Your mind can be like the resurrected mind of Christ. Paul says in his first letter to Corinthians that he's, tr- and, and you know what, this letter to the thing, Paul is, they're just a fractious community. They've got loads of issues between each other. And what Paul does is write to them to say, let's just help heal those wounds that, is in, that are in your community. So that's what 1 Corinthians is all about. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 15, 17. He invites the Corinthians to use their common sense. I just love Paul's. I just think, I think I wouldn't like him, but I love the way he's so practical. He's like, he's like, use your common sense. I mean, literally. He says this, verse 15. I speak to sensible people. Okay, that's a polite way of saying, use your flipping common sense. That's what he's saying. Use your common sense. I speak to sensible people. That's what you say, don't you? I would say that to you if I was trying to encourage you. I wouldn't say you haven't got any common sense. I'd say, you're sensible people. That's what he says. He says, you're sensible people, judge for yourselves. What I say, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break our, participa- our participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share in one loaf. Paul is such a master of rhetoric and persuasion. But what he's trying to do here, he's trying to say, look, we have this deep, Jewish, by the way, Paul's a Jew, Jewish principle that all humanity is one body and because we were all made with the image of Christ. Later in chapter 12, verse 26, Paul reminds the same Corinthians that since we are one body, then we should have equal concern for each other. Verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Friends, that is a description of every family on this planet, of every community on this planet, of every nation on this planet. And if we consider ourselves a community, then we should listen to Paul here. And we should realise that we are one body. If one part suffers, then we all suffer. If one part is honoured, everyone rejoices with it. What a powerful metaphor that motivates us to care for other people and puts caring for other people at the top of our priority list as people who follow Jesus both global and local, both community and family. So as we carry this common financial wound as a church, as we carry the many wounds that we all carry within ourselves, friends, the only way, by the way, you will ever be able to share your wounds with other people is if if you're willing to be vulnerable about what those wounds are. Because if we don't know what the wounds are, how can we share them with you? And so we need to share and be vulnerable with trusted people. And then perhaps we can then walk together as companions, sharing in our common suffering. But as we do this today, I want to encourage you to come and take some bread and juice, and you don't have to be qualified to do this. <laughs> All right, this is just an expression. It's a physical expression of being one body, one community made in the image of God, the whole of, the whole of humanity. We're gonna share in the body and blood of Christ. That's what it represents. The bread represents the body, the juice represents his blood. And we're gonna claim that resurrection healing for ourselves. Every wound that you carry, You can stay in the game with those wounds. And Jesus offers you, I think, hope in his resurrection body. He offers us all hope that our wounds will be healed if we allow him to. So we're going to just invite you to come to the front. Burn, probably put some quiet music on. If you're at home, grab some bread and some juice. It doesn't have to be juice. It can be anything. But to share in the body and blood of Christ because we are one body. And when one part of our body suffers, we all suffer. When one part of our body is honoured, we all celebrate. So why don't we do that now? And we give thanks to God. We'll put some quiet music on. Make your own way to the front. Take some bread. Take some juice. There's gluten-free bread if you want it. And then after you've done that, if you would like some prayer for some wounds that you're carrying at the moment, just come to the front. Don't be shy. Come to the front. We'll just lay a hand on your shoulder and just pray for you. You don't have to say anything if you don't want to. You say, please, can you pray for me? Some people will pray for you. It's all right. And if you're at home and you want some prayer, then just get in contact. and We'll have someone call you and pray with you. Fantastic. Let's put some music on. Do come to the front and get some juice and bread.